1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Jess Clark, one of the co-hosts here on the channel. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Aidan Forth, an assistant professor at Loyola University, about his new book, Barbed Wire Imperialism, Britain's Empire of Camps, 1876-1903, to published in 2017 by the University of California Press as part of the Berkeley Series in British Studies. In this fascinating book, Forth employs a comparative and trans-imperial approach to map a global network of camps established by Britain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Between 1876 and 1903, officials set up famine, plague, and wartime concentration camps across India and South Africa in response to a number of interconnected global emergencies. Situating these imperial camps within a longer tradition of Victorian reforms, Fourth, reveals that while the camps ostensibly provided care and relief for millions of inmates, they simultaneously functioned as sites of social control and confinement. Ultimately, barbed wire imperialism challenges existing understandings of British concentration camps, recasting them not as exceptional wartime measures, but as ubiquitous tools in imperial governance. Um, So Aidan, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Jess. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for summing my book up so well. You should have written the blurb <laughs> at the back.
1: <laughs> um, so, Aiden, can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself?
0: Yes, okay. Well, uh, as you say, my name is Aiden Forth. I was born, actually, in Britain, in Oxford which is probably a fitting place for an academic to be born. Um, Although I left Oxford when I was quite young, I spent my early childhood in Southeast Asia, actually, traveling while living in Singapore and then in Thailand. Eventually, my family made its way to Canada. So from the kind of tropical luxury of of, uh, a beautiful kind of complex in Thailand, we uh, then moved to Edmonton in Western Canada and experienced uh, a life of sub- subarctic climates. Um, after Canada, I uh, I eventually moved to the United States to pursue my PhD work in history. I attended Stanford University in California. I think if if there's anything consistent about my life trajectory, it's that I like to move around a lot. And I, as a result, have quite a global outlook. I'm interested in global problems. And I'm interested also in examining, exploring the transnational dimensions of phenomena and events that uh, are sometimes told, uh, uh, are sometimes studied in, in isolation. And so I think that comes out in, in the book that I've written as well.
1: Yeah, I certainly agree. I mean, I think we'll get into that, but you can see the ways that your movement across space has subsequently influenced the way you can sexualize the relationship between these imperial sites. And um, so, in in relation to this, how did you come to write barbed wire imperialism? What what led you to a focus on camps in this particular historical context? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Well, to me. Camps, concentration camps in particular, but other types of camps as well, POW camps, refugee camps, and so on, Uh, almost an emblematic symbol of modernity and of the 20th century. Uh, I'm interested in issues of violence, of coercion, of injustice. So there was something, I think, very alluring about the idea of a camp. I started... uh, my, my my lens into this book was actually uh, simply the fact that I had never heard about the concentration camps, as they were known, of the South African or the Anglo-Boer War uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. I had never heard about this until the first year of graduate school. Um, I think that often good books arise out of a position of ignorance uh, and at least a willingness to overcome that ignorance and um, and, and transcend it. So uh, the, the first reason I got involved in uh, the study of camps was simply that I knew nothing about them. I, I knew, of course, everything, not, not everything, but a lot about the Nazi concentration camps and the Soviet Gulag. But the fact that Britain, supposedly a liberal and a democratic power, was the first uh, regime in world history to invent a concentration camp, or at least to coin the term concentration camp, this to me seemed to be significant, and there was a lot to unpack there. Uh, I was also interested in some of the arguments that the political theorist Hannah Arendt makes. I was reading Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism at the time I started this project. And Arendt wants to tell us that There was something about the empire, about the experience of European imperial rule in the 19th century that had an impact that had implications for the type of modern violence committed in the 20th century. I felt that the camp as something invented, first developed in the late 19th century, would uh, certainly have something to tell us about what's happened in the 20th century. I, of course, started this project as a historian of Britain as well. So I was interested in what kind of British contribution to a larger global history of forced confinement and encampment. What role does Britain play there? Britain is often seen as the paradigmatic liberal polity Niall Ferguson who is one of i suppose you could say one of the apostles of a sort of imperial apologetics in and rehabilitation in the 21st century has written that the british empire's legacy to the rest of the world was commerce capitalism christianity and constitutions uh he you know he 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 may be right about that but i thought that there's an additional flip side to this story of Britain as the maker of the modern world. Uh, And so I thought that the trajectory of camps from the 19th to 20th centuries would also be an interesting way to explore that. And then finally, I was interested, I suppose, in what is just a basic historical question Why does something first arise? What is it about that particular historical moment in time that leads to a sudden proliferation of camps? Humanity has dealt with injustice, with warfare, with famine for centuries and centuries and millennia and millennia. But camps, I think, are in many ways a particularly modern institution. Uh, They arise according to a certain set of circumstances. And so, I don't think it's a coincidence that the late 19th and the 20th century uh, has led to such uh, a widespread practice of interning civilian populations, innocent, you could say, people, certainly people not charged with any crime, people who are interned en masse uh, in a camp. So, I think that to understand camps is in many ways to understand. What it means to be modern, what modern states and polities do.
1: Excellent. And speaking to this issue of these very specific um, ideas and events that lead to or inform the development of these camps, and um, in the beginning of the book, you open by situating uh, imperial camps within a broader context of Victorian management of bodies and space. So can you speak a little bit about the Victorian systems of concentration and confinement more generally that uh, influence later developments in the colonies?
0: Yes, of course. And I think one of the great advances in British history in the last Uh, few decades has been to demonstrate the extent to which British history, the domestic history of the British Isles, uh, and imperial history, the history of colonies overseas, was in fact deeply entwined and interrelated. And so the fact that you have a proliferation of institutions of confinement overseas in the empire is intimately related to some of the developments occurring within Britain itself getting back to this idea that there's something particularly modern about camps uh, one thing that the philosopher Michel Foucault tells us is that sometime in the modern period and he's as as usual he's vague about dates and so on. But sometime in the modern period, states, governments became increasingly interested in managing people, in managing populations, rather than simply extending sovereignty over a particular territory. There emerged also in the 18th and the 19th centuries a new attitude, uh, a new cultural persuasion that the goal of good governance was to cultivate and take care of that population, uh, to make it grow, to make it prosper, to make it uh, healthy, but also to make it conform in certain ways. And so there is, as a result of these new, what you might call rationalities of government, there is in The Victorian period in Britain, what a uh, historian long ago termed a revolution in government. The state itself increased in its capacity to intervene in the uh, lives of its population, whether for better or, or for worse, and there developed a network of institutions of confinement over the course of the late 18th and the 19th centuries. Uh, in particular, prisons replaced earlier forms of punishment as kind of a normative system for dealing with deviants, for dealing with particular individuals or groups that didn't uh, necessarily conform to the ideals, to the precepts of uh, the good Victorian moral citizen. Uh, in addition to prisons, there's, there's schools, there's hospitals, and there's also workhouses Workhouses, uh, of course, these had existed uh, for a long time as well, but after the Victorian Poor Law of 1834, uh, they became more professional in nature, more disciplinary in nature, larger, better organized, more planned out, and just uh, in general more common. Workhouses um, share a they share certain features with concentration camps. They're they're not exactly the same by by any means, but um, they establish the principle of confinement. First of all, workhouses often are preemptive in nature. Uh, The logic is that uh, people will be confined in order to prevent them from committing crimes and and so on. Um, They, they, harsh in their living conditions by conscious design. You see in workhouses all kinds of experiments in uh, feeding people as little as possible, uh, in um, providing shelter that is as uncomfortable as possible, um, both to, in a way, sort of punish the inmates, but also in other ways to Uh, uh, reform them, reform them in particular through hard work. There's this new ideology of work developing in the 19th century, partly as a result of the disciplines of modern capitalism, um, whereby work itself is seen as a civilizing influence. And so these Uh, Some of the basic ingredients, harsh by conscious design, preemptive in nature, uh, exacting hard work, uh, also enforcing hygiene and sanitation for the Victorians, cleanliness and godliness certainly went hand in hand. And so the workhouses then assemble many of the basic ingredients that are later reassembled in the empire Workhouses, in many ways, are also not simply humanitarian institutions. In fact, they, they aren't really humanitarian at all, although their ostensible purpose is to relieve and shelter the, the destitute. But workhouses, in many ways, uh, I would argue, are instruments of counterinsurgency, of uh, a counterinsurgency against the sort of poor, uh, criminal, dangerous classes, as they were known in the Victorian period. George Bernard Shaw... The Fabian once said that workhouses and similar institutions would, quote, take the insurrectionary edge off poverty. So uh, I see the workhouse as an important prototype for some of the camps that we see later on in the empire. And um, the empire, I think, is important to our story here because it's a slightly different context from. Uh, Victorian Britain. There's more scope for authoritarian measures. There's uh, uh, empires ruled by people who readily dismiss the uh, basic human rights of the populations they're governing. Empire, of course, is based on it, uh, nurtures hardening visions of race and of racial difference and so on. Um, Partha Chatterjee, the post-colonial scholar, coins this frame, the rule of colonial difference. And so my interest is uh, ultimately, how do we take these institutions of Victorian British governance and how do we translate them into an imperial context? And what difference does empire make? How, in other words, does this rule of colonial difference manifest itself in terms of uh, confinement and encampment? And so one of the things I look at in uh, the early chapters is something called criminal tribe camps. In 1869, I believe it was, there was an act passed by the British Parliament, the Habitual uh, Criminals Act, which introduced legislation that made it harder for vagrants, uh, for sort of wandering people, to uh, move from parish to parish without a series of passes and, and and other checks on their mobility. Only a year later, in India, the British Raj passed something called the Criminal Tribes Act, which uh, which demarcated a particular subgroup of the population, largely their tribal people in the uplands of. Uh, of, of South Asia, and it demarcated them as criminal, and it defined this criminality according to genetics and hereditary. This is one of the differences that imperialism makes. Uh, criminals in Britain are seen as individuals who are likely uh, guilty of some definable crime. Empire governs people not as individuals but as collectivities. And so what happens is uh, that the British Raj defines this group as criminal, uh, particular tribes as criminal, and then it uh, encamps them in a network of enclosures, criminal tribe camps, and puts uh, these populations, including women and children, to uh, uh, forms of um, punitive and also rehabilitative labor. Um, So... Already, even before we get to some of the events I talk about in uh, the book whereby uh, 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 British officials are creating camps on a mass scale, already we have uh, administrators experimenting with uh, extrajudicial confinement, uh, both both, both in Britain, where it has a juridical gloss to it, as well as in the empire.
1: I think that one of the um, most productive and interesting elements of um, of that opening chapter are the ways that you create these linkages, um, and you basically break down boundaries between what's happening in you know what we consider quote unquote the metropole um, versus imperial development. So it's it's incredibly productive and. Um, This is made all the more um, interesting as you move the reader across global geographies um, as you move through the book, linking these imperial contexts in new and revealing ways to to chart this complex empire of camps. Um, So um, following this opening chapter, the book then takes us uh, to India in a moment of devastating famine. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the nature of the camps established there in the 1870s and the 1890s.
0: Yes, of course. Um, And maybe let's just back up and point out that two of the most devastating famines to ever happen in human history occurred in India Uh, first in 1876 to 1877, and then again in 1896. And that famine really continued off and on until 1902. There's a very well-known, well-regarded book by Mike Davis called Late Victorian Holocausts," which really, I think, lays out how These famines were not simply natural disasters. They weren't simply the result of drought and monsoonal failure. Rather, these famines were man-made. They were the result of Victorian political economy exercised in India. Um, What interests me, of course, is not the cause of these famines, but rather the results and the type of uh, quote-unquote relief measures that Britain enacted to combat these famines. Um, The sad thing to say, I think, is that the solution to the famine was in many ways almost as bad as the famine itself. What happens is that Britain creates a vast network of detention camps, of refugee camps, of um, other enclosures where famished people are concentrated, where they're cared for on a minimal basis, but also where they are controlled. There's basically two reasons why the British turned to camps during this famine. And the first reason is that famine results in massive population movements. Uh, particular areas of the South Asian subcontinent uh, devastated by famine, crops fail, there's no food. Other areas um, uh, struggle, but they, they uh, aren't as impacted se- as severely. So what happens is you have hundreds of thousands of famine refugees, as they were known, people who are displaced by hunger, by drought, um, and also by some of the social unrest that accompanies all this. Cities, colonial cities, were besieged by hungry, wailing wanderers and refugees uh, showing up uh, on its streets. British authorities document a spike in crime in many areas. Uh, crime increased by six sixfold and even more. Uh, there's documented cases, a lot of documented cases of, of looting, of robberies. Um, of just general social unrest. And so in this context, famine camps, as they were known, were instruments of security. And this was especially important to British administrators in a post-mutiny context, in a context uh, after the uh, Great Rebellion of 1857, which uh, threatened Britain's rule, its British control of, of the sub- subcontinent in meaningful ways. And so what happens is that British officials, the British police, British military forces, many of whom are seconded from uh, active military conflicts to fight another type of war against this insurgency of uh, starving and impoverished refugees. They often will uh, patrol agricultural rural areas in a systematic way and collect up uh, uh, wanderers, refugees, um, and concentrate them in camps. Uh, partly this, of course, is simply these people are, are starving and they're, they're, they're taken to a camp where they, they can be uh, fed up in a way given, given water, given a little bit of shelter. And so on. Some of these camps are run by missionaries, uh, which is a, actually an aspect of the story. I don't get into too much in, in the book. But most of the camps are run by the government. In cities, there is uh, there, there are a series of what I would call, not, not ethnic cleansing, but social cleansing campaigns where the police uh, go block by block and they Uh, arrest um, vagrants. They arrest people squatting in in the streets and then march them in Bombay. They march them several miles to uh, a network of of camps on the outskirts of the city. Um, So that's one type of camp. Um, Many of these people being taken to them were coerced. They were forced to go to them. Um, even though the British felt that the point of these camps was simply to feed people, the, uh, the the Indian groups involved often felt otherwise. There's a lot of rumors and stories that circulate about how uh, all the people are going to be drowned in a river or they're going to be shipped overseas and so on. There's a great deal of mistrust between ruler and ruled in India. And in many ways, I think camps reflect that mistrust. So that's one type of camp which serves a specific security purpose. A lot of the vagrants and wanderers in this famine are also assumed to be these kind of criminal tribes, the, these crim- this criminal class, this substratum of dangerous people. Um, the other reason why Britain sets up camps, and these camps are slightly different. They're slightly less rigorous in their security apparatus. Um, Britain sets up work camps for... Um, the supposedly able-bodied poor, for uh, agricultural uh, people who are unable to harvest their crops due to the drought. Um, And they're concentrated in uh, strategic places where they're put to work, largely on public works, railway, canal, road construction. Much of the infrastructure built in the late 19th century, the Buckingham Canal, for example, in uh, Madras Much of this infrastructure was built by uh, famine laborers, by the inmates of uh, famine work camps. Ultimately, I think about uh, up to 10 million people ended up in some of these camps. So this was a massive, massive undertaking. Um, The camps in many ways, I think, highlight some of the tensions, I think some of the hypocrisies of British imperial rule. Um, Many of the people running camps were ideologues. They were laissez-faire capitalist ideologues. Uh, They felt that uh, it was not the state's purpose to intervene in the economy. Uh, Certainly, it wasn't to provide uh, gratuitous charity, outdoor relief, as it would be known in Britain, whereby people are given uh, uh, provided with money or, or food in their homes. Um, So there's a definite sentiment that militates against uh, sort of the distribution of charity. Um, And this was supposed to be in the name of laissez-faire, in the name of avoiding state intervention. Yet at the same time, what does happen is a massive system of detention camps, and there can't be anything much more statist about that. And so uh, this chapter on famine, I hope, brings out some of these tensions uh, and contradictions of, of British liberalism and of British imperialism.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. And not only do you explore um, the famine camps and as you describe these work camps, um, but we also see the development of another type of camp in India um, and eventually also in South Africa. So can you tell us a bit about plague camps um, and their significance and the transnational linkages between these two sites?
0: Yes. So... India doesn't have a very good experience in the late 19th century. I think that's fair to say. Not only do massive famines break out, largely as a result of uh, British political economy, British economic policies and trade policies and so on, but there's a devastating plague as well, a bubonic plague that first reaches India in 1896 in the port city of Bombay. Uh, But plague, uh, and, and this I think bears pointing out, plague the plague epidemic of the late 19th century is itself also an artifact of empire, of what we today might call globalization, of the increased circulation of goods and people across the world. So plague is first imported to India from Hong Kong, another British port, another British imperial port. Uh, Later, plague makes its way to South Africa. The reason for this is that in South Africa, war breaks out, the Anglo-Boer War, which we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, And military supplies, in particular fodder for uh, horses used by the British army, um, are infected with plague. And that's how they end up in Cape Town. So in a way, Britain uh, uh, plays a role, an, an unwitting one, of course, uh, but a role nonetheless in spreading plague across the world. As the world gets more globalized, I think the potential for global uh, pandemics becomes uh, more more real. Now, plague is uh, an interesting topic to explore when you're interested in imperial government for a few reasons. One thing I try to do in this book is not only bridge... Uh, connections between different areas of the world, but also to bridge disciplinary divides. Um, So uh, you'll see if you read the book that it's quite – influenced by social science, by political theory, and and so on, although hopefully not in an overhanded way. Um, But one of the scholars who's important for my own theoretical framing is Zygmunt Bauman, uh, the great Polish, uh, -Polish, Anglo-Polish sociologist who, who recently passed away. But he points out that one of the defining, one of the animating metaphors of modern governance is medicine. The goal again of good governance is to create a healthy population, to uh, cure, uh, you know, to take this metaphor further. The the point is to cure any disease to allow a population to to prosper and, and thrive. Um, but medicine also involves surgery. It involves amputation. It involves the sort of extermination of particular cells or 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 uh, or, or pathogens medicine plays a an important allegorical role throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and and probably in earlier periods too um you know uh, even in the middle ages people were talking about the health of the body politic and so on um so the outbreak of plague in india i thought was, was a fascinating way not uh not only to uh, tell a kind of medical history of disease, but also to think about some of the ways in which the symbolism of that disease impacts some of the practices um, that, uh, uh, that, that occur both during plague and, and elsewhere. Um, what ultimately Britain does is it establishes a series of what you could call medical quarantine camps throughout India. Again, this involves the sort of careful policing of space, both both uh, in the cities and in the countryside. Uh, the British set up inspection stations at major junctures, at railway platforms, and so on. And what they're looking for is suspects, people who are suspected of carrying and spreading disease. But ultimately, and this is really the point of the chapter, ultimately, plague control in India is never only or never even primarily governed by the scientific uh, criteria of, of of medicine. So over 99% of people who are detained as suspects don't have any uh, unusual symptoms. They're perfectly healthy. They never go on to uh, develop plague or to carry it or, or to spread it. Um, so plague opens up a moment of crisis where some of the larger anxieties about Britain's presence in India uh, opened up. The people who end up in these camps are largely, again, the colonial poor, undesirable populations, vagrant populations, Nomadic populations, unattached, rootless, a sort of lumpen proletariat, if you will. Uh, the plague authorities, they come out and say, actually, quite straightforwardly, that plague is. A disease of, of the poor. Europeans, the uh, wealthy uh, Indian elite who collaborate with uh, a, a British government in India, they're totally exempt from an, any type of plague measure. So this is really a policy, plague camps are a policy directed at the colonial poor. Um, and the story of them opens up all kinds of interesting insights about the social control of the imperial masses, uh, people who couldn't be trusted uh, to perform, uh, quote-unquote, hygienic uh, measures, who couldn't be trusted not to travel, couldn't be uh, trusted not to uh, spread plague.
1: Well, speaking of um, control of an imperial population, um, there is, at the midpoint of the book, a discussion, an analysis of the construction and administration of camps, you know, as these technologies in managing bodies and space. Um, And so can you elaborate a little bit on these camps as um, colonial instruments of power and control?
0: Yes, one of the reasons that I got so interested in camps is that I think they provide us a contained microcosm of colonial rule. They open up all of the priorities, all of the constraints of empire. Um, What we see in the camps is a, what I would say, quite characteristic dynamic uh, reproduced throughout the British Empire of both coercion and of care. Concerns about security coupled with a sort of baseline sympathy for the victims of a massive humanitarian tragedy. Uh, So Looking at the internal space of the camps, the way they were organized, the way they were governed, helps in many ways to understand what empire was all about. Um, in in the uh, chapter to which I think you refer, I, um, in many ways, not only display how British kind of paternalistic views of, of of the population were enacted in kind of a humanitarian way, but also the extent to which empire fundamentally was an authoritarian affair. Uh, you have officials like uh, Sir Richard Temple, for example, who was the governor of Bombay, who says that he admits that ultimately these camps, both the famine and the plague camps, uh, constitute uh, unlawful confinement. They interfere with the liberty of the subject. And yet he says that he feels that it's unlikely that, quote, a strolling beggar will launch a complaint against government for unlawful confinement. Another one of the characters, and this is one of the ways I try to trace some of these transnational connections that we'll get to is via the lived experiences of um, what the historians David Lambert and Alan Lester have called imperial careerists. So one of these people, his name is S.J. Thompson. He remarks that uh, what is wanted in times of both famine and plague is a uh, a dictator, a leader, a strong authoritarian who can uh, take command. So uh, the chapter kind of uh, follows these sentiments and looks at the way in which camps are ultimately standardized with their own rules and operating procedures. Uh, officials assemble a list of uh, a, 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 a list of. Um, Rules that are placed that are nailed to the front of every single camp about what is and isn't permissible. Uh, They formulate standards of discipline, standards of sanitation, and so on. This chapter is meant, first of all, simply to show that by the turn of the 19th century, the camp was a familiar, standardized bureaucratic institution within the British Empire. Um, And so one reason why you get more camps right away in the uh, South African War, which we'll get to, is simply because uh, people are already very familiar with camps as a holding space for um, unwanted populations. But the chapter, I think, is also meant as something of an accusation. Because one of the main themes of the South African and the Anglo-Boer war camps, one of the main tragedies of them is that tens of thousands of people died, uh, due mostly to the outbreak of epidemic disease. And so often it's said that this was simply an unfortunate circumstance. There's nothing that could have been done about it. Um, what I try to say is that the British knew exactly how to control Epidemic disease within concentrated enclosures. They had been doing it for a few decades, um, and so there's no excuse for what happens in South Africa, uh, which which perhaps we'll get to now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that when many of us think about Britain's role in designing concentration camps, it really is, um, for me at least, it was solely in the context of the Anglo Boer War. Um, But as you reveal in the book. You know, this is only one part of this much longer history and network of camps established under British colonial rule, which, as you just mentioned, um, provided them with a degree of knowledge and understanding. You know, a repertoire in terms of of managing these types of camps. Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about the Anglo Boer wartime camps and the way that they figure in your book, and and also what's significant. Um, in terms of your reframing of this moment? Because you're coming at it in a very different way than, as I mentioned, many of us conceive of Britain's relationship to concentration camps.
0: Yes, exactly right. If anybody has ever heard of concentration camps in the British Empire, they'll associate immediately with the Anglo-Boer or the South African War from 1899 to 1902, uh, which takes place largely um, over mineral rights, rights to gold and diamond mines in South Africa. It's fought primarily between British forces and the Boers, who are the descendants of Dutch settlers, uh, from it, from an earlier period. Although the Black African population, uh, played a significant role in this war on, on both sides. This is often called, um, a, a white man's war, but that's simply not true. It encompassed the entire population. Um, what is interesting is that in South Africa, the concentration camps have played a powerful role in the politics of memory, and in particular in the politics of apartheid. After World War II, when the Nashers, when Milan's nationalist government uh, instituted apartheid racial segregation, as a formal policy in South Africa, memory of the concentration camps served to bolster in some ways to legitimize that process, um, kind of perhaps in a counterintuitive way. But the view was that our people, the Africana people, the Boer people have suffered. We have already suffered so much. Uh, we've had an experience of shared suffering within concentration camps. And so what we need now, given this history of suffering and martyrdom, is a strong authoritarian state, one that will take care of our interests uh, first and, and foremost. And so um, what has... Occurred now, uh, now that apartheid has fallen and after Nelson Mandela's Rainbow Revolution and so on, what has happened is a quite intense debate within the South African uh, Academy as to the meaning and the lasting relevance of of these camps. Um, The interesting thing is that when I first started this project, I kind of, I mean, I'll admit that I started from a sort of left leaning liberal position that, um, you know, the, the British Empire was a repressive force that had committed a lot of violence and crimes against humanity, and and so on. The interesting thing is that when I got to South Africa, the only people who really wanted to uh, talk about that narrative, vis-à-vis the concentration camps, were sort of uh, white supremacists who uh, lamented the end of of, of apartheid. Um, Whereas other people felt that memory of this suffering of the Africana peoples was perhaps uh, uh, uncovered sort of ugly aspects of South Africa's own past. Um, as someone from from Britain and ultimately from Canada and the United States, I wasn't as invested in those political turf wars as uh, people operating within South African academia. Um, and ultimately what I wanted to do was contextualize the South African camps within a much larger Global framework uh, to show that we can't understand what happened in South Africa without uh, understanding what was going on elsewhere in the empire. Concentration camps, in other words, are not uh, the product of a unique uh, dynamic within South Africa. They're not uh, they're they're not the subject of a nationalist history of South Africa alone. Rather, they're part of a broader Imperial story, and I think that's important to understand why these camps first emerged, how they operated uh, etc. Et the other thing was that I was very dissatisfied with a lot of the work that had been done on the South African camps. The normal story here is that the South African camps were the product of military necessity of a uh, Counter guerrilla insurgency campaign within uh, South Africa. Um, It is true that um, after a sort of period of set piece battles and so on, uh, the war in South Africa, to to use the word of a British commander, degenerated into a guerrilla conflict, a conflict fought without uh, battle lines, without uniforms, and so on. What the response is from Britain? Is to divide the land up with grids of barbed wire fences, connected by blockhouses, lookout posts that could surveil the landscape, Um, and then ultimately to uh, visit people's farms and to uh, capture and concentrate civilians who were suspected of aiding the guerrilla insurgency, whether giving shelter to uh, guerrilla insurgents, giving them food, or just more generally giving them ideological support. The South African War, I think, helps bridge the colonial wars of the 19th century with the total wars of the 20th century. Uh, The South African War, in many ways, was a people's war, war fought for nationalism, for national identity, and, and so on. Distinctions between civilians and soldiers break down in this war. Uh, in important and revealing ways. Um, so ultimately, Britain, uh, British soldiers go around to bore farmsteads. Um, those they suspect of having helped uh, guerrilla insurgents are then uh, taken. Uh, they're, they're, they're taken to cities, actually, or, or towns, or military outposts where they can be better watched and better controlled. Um, that's the military story. That's um, uh, the way the story is usually told. And it's not necessarily wrong, but it's only part of what's going on. Because it explains why the British removed people from their farms. It explains why uh, the British concentrated them in uh, urban centers. And this is something that the Spanish had done in Cuba under Valeriano Vela uh, the Spanish general in in Cuba who comes up with something called reconcentration camps reconcentrados um, and so what Vela does is he just sort of uh, removes civilians from the countryside, puts them in cities, but then he just sort of neglects them and, and uh, lets them fend for themselves. The British take this a step further. And so once they've concentrated the population in in towns and urban centers, and military outposts, they take a further step, which is to then remove these people to camps, uh, purpose-built camps uh, on the suburban periphery of, of these centers. And so this is a story as much about social policing, as much about anxieties that the um, refugees, as they were kind of, I, I think, problematically called, uh, were were spreading disease, were spreading unrest, were spreading crime. Um, there's a racial element to this story as well, which is quite revealing. Uh, at the beginning of the South African war, the Boers are upheld as this kind of model healthy Anglo-Saxon race, uh, they con- this connected with all kinds of concerns in Britain itself that recruits from kind of industrial centres like Manchester were themselves racially degenerating. They weren't as strong as these rustic kind of uh, boar horsemen and cattle ranchers on on the frontier, and um, that's the normal view in in the historical literature of the Boers. But what I found is, of course, that race isn't simply or even At all a biological category, but race is a cultural discourse that can be employed in strategic ways. And so another part of the war is that as it quote unquote degenerates into a irregular guerrilla insurgency, views about the Boers themselves held by the British change. Increasingly, the British start to talk about the Boers as a degenerate race, as a race that has degenerated within amidst the, uh, Uh, tropical or subtropical African environment. Uh, Increasingly, the Boers are equated to animals. Uh, They're dirty, they're unhygienic, they're uncivilized. Uh, One, reading the diary of a soldier, one said that he, quote, hated the Boers with the same uh that we hate the plague-infested rat. Um, so there's really some quite sort of strong racial language being employed uh, at this point in the war as well. And so the ultimate decision to place the Boer people, as well as uh, Africans who are displaced uh, and concentrated in towns as well, the uh, ultimate response is to remove them from the towns and put them in suburban camps. And the camps, uh, it again bears pointing out, managed by civilian authorities for the vast majority of their existence rather than by military authorities. So I think there's an important social and cultural history to these camps that uh, is missed in the existing literature about the South African War. And the move being made here by integrating the story of South Africa with the story of camps in India uh, during moments of, of hunger and social unrest and disease and so on. The move is simply to show that the decision to put these people in camps emerges from a similar complex of concerns uh, that also led to camps in, uh, in India during famine and plague, concerns about control, order, health, uh, and, and so on.
1: And I think that you bring these connections with Indian examples full circle um, when we come near the, to the book's conclusion, when you chart the mobilization of, of both metropolitan but also imperial experts to reform camp systems. So can you tell us a little bit about this process and the significance of this knowledge transfer?
0: Yes. Um, I think it's significant uh, in both kind of a specific and a more general way. Um, What happens in the Boer War camps is that epidemic diseases break out. They kill people in the tens of thousands, close to 50,000 people out of a total of a quarter million encamped, ultimately died, mostly from disease. Uh, And this created a scandal in Britain um, one of the things about the Boers, of course, is that they were racialized in particular ways that permitted them to be placed in these camps in the first place. Uh, but they do retain this what uh, Lord Kitchener, one of the commanders, in the ca- commanding officer in chief in Britain, what, what he called a thin white veneer. Uh, so they were still sort of European enough for their detention in camps to ultimately cause a scandal in uh, Britain. A lot of the uh, inmates were uh, visibly sort of uh, emaciated, um, not only because of poor nutrition, but also because of diseases like typhoid and, and, and so on, wasting diseases and so on. But these images of starving women and children in concentration camps cause a humanitarian scandal in Britain, and uh, British authorities get very Uh, worried about the ramifications and the political fallout from all of this. And so ultimately, they determine that it's in their best interests, as well as, of course, the people in the camp is in their interest too, to uh, reform the camps, um, to make them healthy, to improve the living conditions, and so on. Uh, What Britain does then is it sends out a Uh, investigative committee, which uh, quite interestingly consists mostly of, uh, well, entirely of women who have backgrounds in social welfare work. Emily Hophouse, who is, uh, she's not on the committee, but she's one of the main humanitarian critics, uh, tells the government that what was really needed uh, to uh, get these camps under control and uh, uh, prevent the spread of disease, what was really needed was uh, female poor law guardians, women who had experience uh, in social investigation, experience running some of these uh, metropolitan uh, institutes like workhouses and, and so on. Um, so they uh, go to South Africa. Uh, they um, write a report uh, listing suggestions. The sort of an interesting thing here is that um, because they're women, they're not permitted to make strong uh, political uh, statements about these camps, their uh, realm is very much uh, kind of uh, limited to the social, um, which I think is in a way by design by the British government. Uh, but then the second thing you have is that Britain quite rapidly via the high commissioner in South Africa, Alfred Milner, and the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, turned to India India, after all, is the crown jewel of the British Empire. Uh, it's the place from which uh, experience, technical expertise, uh, and and so on emanates. And so uh, Chamberlain visits the India office to speak with people there about experiences in the famine and plague camps, how is discipline maintained, how is sanitation maintained, and so on. And ultimately what Britain does is it seconds from India a coterie of experts. Uh, People who were involved in writing these standardized reports of the famine and plague camps, people involved in governing plague and famine camps, and it seconds them to South Africa. Uh, And they take over control of of these camps, the big guns or the new geniuses from India, as they were called in the documents. Um, And they do, it has to be said, achieve some success in stemming the spread of disease, uh, in uh, reforming conditions. Um, And ultimately, in legitimizing the camp as part of the standard and justifiable arsenal of uh, modern warfare and of, uh, I guess you could say, modern welfare as well. And so in a way, um, although the camps at first are uh, are just dreadful, scandalous institutions, they are reformed into uh, enclosures where um, at least people aren't, aren't aren't dying of disease anymore. The death rate goes down to about two percent, which is the same as in a industrial town in in Britain at the time. Um, so the legacy here is sort of important in that, um, despite the many trials and tribulations that camps pose, by the end of the South African War, Britain is confident that. It can use camps again in future situations. Um, the, the camps, in other words, are compatible with kind of a liberal form of governance.
1: Well, this connects to a theme that runs throughout the book. Um, as you chart the humanitarian arguments that were used to frame and at times to justify these camps, um, in in this uh, moment that you term or sorry, relationship that you term a tightly braided colonial politics of humanity and security. So um, can you speak briefly about the relationship between modern humanitarianism and famine, plague, and wartime camps?
0: Yes. The term refugee camp and the term concentration camp were not conceptually differentiated until after World War II. So, uh, there's all sorts of examples uh, throughout the early 20th century where British officials call institutions concentration camps, where we might today call them by some other euphemism, like internment camp or refugee camp. President Roosevelt in the United States referred to internment camps of Japanese Americans quite sort of unproblematically as concentration camps, places where... uh, unwanted, undesirable groups of people are concentrated uh, I and mean, then can be controlled. Uh, so it's not after it's not until after the experience of Nazi war crimes that the term concentration camp receives its specific pejorative connotation that it has today. Um, but what has, I think, happened is, via the bifurcation of these two terms, today we tend to think that a refugee camp is very different from a concentration camp. Uh, and what I am trying to say is actually... Uh, concentration refugee camps stem from uh, the same ancestor. They have the same sort of DNA imprinted on them, even though there's important moral distinctions that could be made between them. Uh, So in a final chapter, what I try to look at is some of the legacies of British concentration camps. There's this wonderful scene that takes place in 1939 when the British ambassador to Berlin, his name's Neville Henderson, has a meeting with uh, Hermann Goering, the Nazi leader. Uh, and Neville Henderson is lodging a, a British complaint about Germany's proliferating concentration camps on the eve of World War II. And Goering's response to this is to walk over to his bookshelf to pull down the K volume of uh, a German encyclopedia and to read out Konzentrationslager, first used by Britain in the South African War. Um, There are, I think, some family resemblances, even distant ones, um, between World War II concentration camps and the type of mass uh, extrajudicial, preemptive internment detention that takes place In the British Empire. And those are things that I explore without, you know, in any facile way uh, drawing equivalencies. But to me, I think the most important and lasting legacy of British famine, plague, and uh, South African concentration camps is uh, the refugee camps in the world today. Uh, The refugee studies scholar Barbara Harold Bond has referred to The camps, many of them consisting of barbed wire, of uh, quite formidable carceral infrastructure, the camps holding 20 million refugees in the world today, have essentially evolved into a a custodial regime for innocent people. And some uh, critiques, well, critiques increasingly are being levied against Against humanities, against modernities, increasing sort of predilection to confine groups of people in in camps. Um, Pope Francis II uh, just recently was visiting a camp in, uh, sorry, Pope Francis was visiting a camp in uh, southern Europe. And he said that this was a refugee camp, but he called it a concentration camp. Um, and whether this was a slip of the tongue, I'm not sure. There was a huge sort of uh, uh, debate that then took place saying, can you possibly compare a refugee camp to like a Nazi concentration camp in, in World War II? Um, I think in a way, Pope Francis was, was wrong if he had the Nazi empire in mind, but he was right if he had concentration camps as they exist in the late 19th and early 20th century in mind. Because um, in many ways, I think the camps that Britain is creating are for uh, unwanted groups, mobile groups, traveling groups. There's a fear that they'll spread crime, disease, unrest. Often these groups are stateless. Um, One of the things about empire is that the populations within British colonies are largely Stateless, they don't have their own state. They're imperial subjects rather than citizens imbued with uh, civic rights and so on. Same today. Refugees are are, are normally stateless people. They don't have the imprimatur of a state to back up their uh, claim to to human rights. Um, And so, I think that there's a lot of important parallels between uh, British concentration camps in 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 the colonial period and the refugee camps of today. What happens is that many critics of uh, refugee camps, many uh, humanitarian actors uh, involved in caring for and controlling refugees in the world today, um, suffer from some historical amnesia. Harsh critics often levied at uh, certain refugee camps and other practices of detaining migrants and so on. And these critics, often refer to concentration camps in World War II. Um, Ultimately, though, I think that the more fitting, the more instructive, and ultimately, I think the more productive uh, analogy that that can be made is with the British concentration camps of the 19th century. And this isn't only an analogy, it's a genealogy. Uh, Many of the uh, people involved with British famine and play camps ultimately transition into the sphere of non-governmental organizations into the League of Nations. So one example of this is Sir Claude Hill, who is uh, deeply involved with famine and plague camps in India. He later goes on to found the Indian branch of the Red Cross. He's later the Director General of the League of Red Cross Societies. Um, another uh, official, Benj- Benjamin Robertson, is... Uh, f- uh, uh, his career develops as, as an official in India, um, and later he goes on to advise the League of Nations on camps following World War I and so on. So um, the basic dynamics of camps with their dual mandates of both coercion and of care um, are imprinted on the institution of the camp via their uh, somewhat inauspicious imperial origins. Um, So I hope this book appeals to historians. I hope it also appeals to uh, people involved with uh, refugees today because it provides uh, an important backstory to some of the tensions and debates and problems that we still have uh, in the world today.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think it's an incredibly important book, not only in terms of its historiographic interventions, but as you say, in terms of um, um, contemporary events, current events in relation to um, migrants and refugees around the world. So I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today about this book. Um, And it's such a fascinating work. and, And I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, Before we go, though, at the New Books Network, we traditionally end our discussions by asking what you're working on next.
0: Oh, dear. Uh, I was hoping to escape the camp as a uh, framework of scholarship, but it seems that may not be the case because uh, uh, I I recently received a contract from uh, the University of Toronto Press to write kind of a general history of the concentration camp. Um, from the 19th century to today, so I think that's going to occupy me for the next uh, couple years. But after that, I do hope to finally escape and no longer be imprisoned by camps. Uh, and so, I'm also developing a project on uh, voyages in the Indian Ocean, ship passages from from Britain to India, which I think can tell us also a lot about the way empire was connected and also the way. Uh, the peoples of empire were disconnected via the developing um, infrastructure of large ocean-going ships and and so on. Um, I've spent a bit of time reading the diaries of of, uh, passengers aboard ships. They're fascinating sources. Um, I'm hoping to uh, find a topic that's a little less dreary and, and gruesome and depressing in the future.
1: Well, we'll be sure to look out for your next project and hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again in future years on your your next book. Um, So thanks again for joining us, Aidan. And we will see everyone next time on the New Books Network in British Studies.
0: Thanks so much, Jess. It was an absolute pleasure.